9, verses 9 through 13. This can be found in page 856 of the Pew Bibles. Again, Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened, as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us, thank you so much for being with us. We hope that you'll be able to be back with us time and time again. Your being here is an encouragement to us, and we want to be able to encourage you. We want to welcome our uh, three families that were announced this morning. Uh, we look forward to worshiping more with you and serving with you, and we hope that we can uh, help each other on the way to heaven. Have you ever felt like that if there were a list of individuals uh, made up of your peers, of people that have done well spiritually, and people that others would say, you can count on this individual. They're always right where they need to be, doing exactly what they need to be doing. Have you ever felt like you might not be on that list? Have you ever thought about your life from the aspect of, I'd love to do more for God, but really, I don't guess I'll ever be able to do more for God? You know, there was an email that circulated a while back that really made you do some thinking. The idea behind this email was a consulting group would look through the resumes of the apostles that Jesus wanted to appoint. And they would give their response as to whether or not Jesus ought to allow these individuals to be a part of his leadership of his church based upon their background, their intellect, past experience, aptitude, and etc. Here were the summaries of this made-up situation. The consulting group said, number one, Simon Peter is emotional, unstable, and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no quality of leadership. The two brothers James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. Now notice this one because this is the apostle we'll study this morning. We believe it is our duty to tell you that the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau has blacklisted Matthew. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, definitely have radical leanings. They both register scores on the manic depressive scale. However, one of the candidates shows great potential. He's a man of ability and resourcefulness. He is a great networker and has a keen business mind. Has strong contacts and influential circles. He's highly motivated, very ambitious, adept with financial matters. We recommend Judas is carried as your controller and chief operating officer. Eleven of the twelve apostles were from Galilee. 
the great religious leaders of that day were from Jerusalem. The reputation of Galileans were, whether it was true or not, the reputation was they're just small town folks. They're just farmers. They're just carpenters. They're just fishermen. If you want to find the highly educated and those that can really lead a project to its end, you need to go down to where the people are a little more educated. They're a little more refined. They have a more experience in leadership. What would you have said if Jesus would have marched those individuals before you and said, I want to begin a church. Shortly after I ascend into heaven, I want to begin a church. And here are the 12 men that I have in mind to carry on this great commission to take the gospel of Jesus Christ across the whole world. Do you think that these fishermen and, and this tax collector, do you think I've made a good choice? Friends, this morning, I hope you and I will realize that one of the greatest attributes in our lives that God can always use is humility. When we're willing to humble ourselves in the sight of God in every area of our life, He can do great and wonderful things. As a matter of fact, before we begin studying Matthew this morning, I'd like for you to look at the idea of humility from maybe a, a mindset that you might not have looked at it before. You see, in other words, before Christ begun His kingdom in Acts, the second chapter, the church on this earth, He said through His prophets hundreds of years before, I'm going to use certain individuals to help do this. Now, no, He didn't name Peter and Andrew and James and John, and He didn't name Matthew by name. But you know what He did? He named them by characteristic that all of them would have in their life. Let's look at a few of these. They'll be on the screen or if you want to turn to them. We're beginning at Psalms, the 8th chapter. We won't have time to elaborate about every one of these this morning, but at least let's notice as we read these the humility that's going to be involved in the beginning of the Lord's church and her leaders. Psalms, the 8th chapter... Verse 1 and 2, 1 is, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth who set your glory above the heavens. Now on the screen, look at the beginning of verse 2. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength. Now this verse continues by saying, because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. Now if you were thinking about how you are going to deal with an enemy, would you immediately start talking about infants that are nursing? Well, most of us would say, those are the ones that we need to find someone to protect them. And the psalmist is saying, listen, when you're talking about God doing something, God can take those that individuals think are the very weakest, and He can use them to conquer who individuals think are the greatest enemies. God's plan has always been to use those that think they may be weak, weak themselves, but yet humbly willing to serve, and those that their peers around them think that they're weak, but yet they're humbly willing to serve. Look at Isaiah, the 26th chapter. Isaiah, the 26th chapter. Notice verse 5, 6, and 7 here. Again, think of the humility that's presented here. He brings down those who dwell on high, the lofty city. He lays it low. He lays it low to the ground. He brings it down to the dust. Now let's pause there for just a moment. A city that was fortified was very difficult to penetrate, but especially if that city was on a hill high and lifted up because then they had the advantage of looking down upon their enemies and they immediately knew how to defend themselves. 
So you can imagine in combat, the question was, how would we ever bring down a city that's high and lifted up? Well, notice how God says he can bring down such cities. Verse 6, the foot shall tread it down. Which feet? The feet of the poor and the steps of the needy. The way of the just is uprightness. And here's a description of God. O most upright, you weigh the paths of the just. Who's going to bring down this powerful city? Others may stand around and say, I don't think there's anybody that can bring that city down. And God says, I can bring it down. Give me who you think could never do it. God, the poor and the needy could never do it. God says, okay, I can bring it down with the poor and the needy. God's always been able to use those who are humbly willing to serve Him. Zephaniah, the third chapter, verse 11 and 12. In that day you shall not be ashamed for any of your deeds in which you transgress against me. For then I will take away from your midst those who rejoice in your pride and you shall no longer be haughty. Notice that. It's about those that are proud and those that are haughty that are in my holy mountain. I will leave in your midst a meek and humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. Now you remember where the church began, right? In Jerusalem. Oftentimes in the scriptures, Jerusalem is called the holy mountain. And so here prophecy is given. Who's going to be on that holy mountain? Those that are proud, those that are haughty. They think that they rule the religious world, and so they did, at least for a period of time. And God says, I'm going to sweep through, and I'm going to change some things. And instead of seeing those high and lifted up on themselves, He says, you're going to see a meek and lowly people that are going to begin ruling things spiritually. Did it happen that way? Look with me, if you will, to Luke the fourth chapter, and let's see what happened as Jesus began his earthly ministry. Luke the fourth chapter, verse 28, 29, and 30. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, they were filled with wrath. And what they heard was Jesus prophesying, reading prophecy about himself, saying, I've come here to fulfill this prophecy. And of course, that made them so angry because they didn't want to believe that the Messiah would be a carpenter's son from Nazareth. They wanted to believe that he would be some mighty king that would rule things on this earth. And so they immediately wanted to accuse him of blasphemy. And let's read on and see what they wanted to do here. Verse 29, And rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went on his way. From the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, they wanted to take his life. Now, of course, Jesus was giving his life, and it wasn't time for him to give his life, so there was probably a miraculous passing here. In other words, they physically pushed him out of the city. They physically pushed him to the brow of that hill, but yet when it came time for them to kill him, he escaped. But what's the point here? The point is... The proud and the mighty were ruling things just as God said would happen in the Old Covenant. But then, when God wanted to establish His kingdom, just as He said under the Old Covenant, I won't be establishing it with those proud and haughty people. I'm going to look down to some that you think are poor. I'm going to look down to some that you think are needy. And I'm going to use the humble 
to begin my work on this earth. Friends, that is a powerful thought. Let's look through some of this text that has been so capably read for us in Matthew, the ninth chapter. As we think about this man, Levi would be his Jewish name. We know him best because of Matthew, because that's the name of the first gospel, the gospel that he wrote of the life of Jesus Christ. As we think about Matthew or Levi, we think about his humility. Why do we know him of being such a humble man? One, we know by reading back through the Gospels. You see, when we read back through the Gospel account of Matthew, even though it's a very long Gospel account, he only mentions himself twice. Once in a list of the twelve apostles, and the other time we're reading as our text here, where he's simply saying and telling about him being called as a disciple. You see, he doesn't put a great concentration at all upon himself. His life is about God. And he's a man that apparently the Scriptures were more important to him than he and his own life. As a matter of fact, not only does he quote from the Old Testament more than any of the other Gospels, he quotes from more than any of the other Gospels combined. Ninety-nine times he refers to either passages out of the prophecies or passages out of poetry or passages out of the law. This is a man that loved the will of God. He loved it from under the Old Covenant, and no doubt he loved it as he wrote part of the New Covenant. But there's something else that we need to know about Matthew and make sure that we're real clear on this. This humble man might not have always been so humble. This humble man was a tax collector. One that would have been hated in his society. You see, the publicans or the tax collectors were those that were usually of Jewish descent that had, by society's rules, turned their back on their own people to go to work for the Roman government to collect taxes. But it didn't just stop there. They were known to not only collect taxes that were required, but also to pad their own pockets, and the Roman government would turn their head and look the other way. And if individuals said, I'm not going to pay more than what I own, many of them would have their thugs and their thieves that would work for them that would make sure that the money was brought to them. And so you can imagine, just as, you know, the IRS isn't quite as strong-fisted as what they were a decade ago. And maybe somebody here works for the IRS, but I can just imagine, and maybe I'm wrong, but I can just imagine, especially 10 or 15 years ago, if you... If you work for the IRS and you met someone, hey, what's your name? Well, I'm Bob. What's your name? I'm David. What do you do? I work for the IRS. Hmm. We don't like you. I mean, can you imagine how just in our society, you know, there'd kind of be this, that little bit of negative. I get the same thing as a minister. I meet people and immediately you can tell if they like religion or not. You know, they don't like religion. It's, oh, okay. Immediately change the subject. Now think about this. It wasn't just that kind of thing where somebody's saying, well, I I just don't like paying my taxes, so I don't like... They had a reputation of dishonesty. They had a reputation that was dishonorable. So much so that to make a decision to become a tax collector, you literally broke off your ties with your heritage. You no longer would be a part of the family. You no longer would be a part of the society in which you grew up. 
and you no longer would worship God the way you'd been trained and brought up to worship God because you wouldn't even be allowed into the synagogue. We're talking about men that gave up a lot for money. They gave up so much for the belief that they could have so much, and many of them were wealthy. Remember little man Zacchaeus? He was a chief tax collector. In other words, he probably owned several franchises, whereas here we read about Matthew, and he had his own single office there that he operated. But when we think about a man that no doubt Israel would have despised, we think about a man that no doubt had at least a reputation of dishonesty and probably a man that had great wealth. And then let's read verse 9 again as we read here in Matthew the ninth chapter. Look at verse 9. It wasn't just another day at the office. As Jesus passed on from there, he, sat, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. He said to him, follow me. So he arose and he followed him. Now this is powerful. What we have just read is an account of conversion. Here's a man that's sitting at his office. He's sitting at the tax office. In other words, there were various ways in which taxes were collected. Sometimes property tax, but probably what he was doing was some kind of toll tax. Where individuals came by traveling a certain way... And it was his responsibility to collect the tax from those that were passing by. Maybe they weighed the burden down the beast that, that they were leading. Maybe they looked at the number of axles on their cart or on their wagon. There were various ways that they collected these taxes from individuals that would come by their office. And so here's a man that, that he's looking, and it's his job to do this, and he's very much hated by the society in which he dwells. And Jesus comes by and sees him sitting there, and Jesus gives the invitation to him. Follow me. What turned in his mind? Why did he do when we see in Luke the fifth chapter? You see on the screen verse 5? In this same story, Luke's account would say, He left all, rose up, and followed him. Luke places the emphasis that Matthew doesn't. And perhaps Matthew does it because of the humility that he has in his life. But Luke puts the emphasis on it. He says, we're talking about a man that walked away from a lot of things. He walked away from a career that he's not going to go back to. He walked away from a career that no doubt was bringing in a substantial income for him. He walked away a gathering of friends that once he is converted to Jesus Christ, he knows that he's not going to live that kind of life again. About face, a change. And Matthew, when he records it, he says it's so simple. If you left your high paying career to follow Jesus Christ, could you say it in one verse? Could you say, He asked me to follow Him while I was sitting in my office and I followed Him? That's it. That's all He tells about His conversion. I followed him. But now notice, as we go to the next verse, we read, we read the word it. Let's skip that screen and go, look at verse 10. Now it happened. As Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. 
You know how when you're telling someone about the weekend and you might tell what happened on Friday and then you tell maybe about some of the events of Saturday and then all of a sudden you say, and then it happened. That sounds like in the story everything's leading up to that event when they say it happened. It's interesting that Matthew tells about his conversion, tells about him leaving his career behind, and then that not being the climax leads to the point says, and it happened. What just happened here? He's telling about evangelism. Remember when Andrew was converted? We studied these throughout this year. Remember when Andrew was converted? He ran back to tell Peter. Remember when Philip was converted? He ran back to tell Nathaniel. Do you remember in John the fourth chapter when the Samaritan woman was converted? She ran to tell the whole town to come out and hear Jesus. And now what's happening here? Here we see a very similar story. Here we see a man that is wholly converted to Jesus Christ. And what he does is he wants all of his other tax-collecting buddies that are labeled sinners to come for an evening at his house so that Jesus and his disciples can also come for that same evening at his house so that they can meet Jesus. What a beautiful episode is unfolding. You would think that every godly person around would be excited about the fact that Matthew wanted to tell his friends about Jesus and that Jesus had concern about those that were sick and needed spiritual healing and that, that he wanted to set the right example even for his disciples to show his disciples this is who we are, this is what we do. We spend time trying to help those that want to learn more about how to turn their life around. But you know, it didn't work that way, at least with everyone there, because something else happened when it said it happened. Look at verse 11, and we're going to see arrogance also took place at that very same time. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Isn't it interesting that the very thing that was a positive to Jesus Christ was a negative to the Pharisees? But that also reveals something interesting to us about arrogance and about pride. And that is, it puts a backward spin on everything. If I'm arrogant and proud, I'm going to see the truth as a lie, and I'm going to see lies as the truth. Here are individuals that could have taken part in a wonderful evening to share the good news of God with individuals in a society that no doubt needed the good news of God. But they couldn't enjoy it. Because in their arrogance, people like that just didn't belong here. How many times have we heard individuals say, well, it's our job to keep the church pure. You know, it's interesting that those that are very faithful say those words and also those that are very arrogant say those same words. The only reason I bring that up is to say you can't really tell what someone means when they say that. Are they saying that if someone's going to bring in some baggage into church and that they're going to struggle a little bit and they're going to come in as a babe in Christ and they're going to need somebody to help them along and they're going to mess along the way? But if a Christian family will wrap their arms around and they can grow... 
Are they going to say, we don't want that here? Our jobs keep the church pure. We don't want those that can come in and look like us from day one. Friends, that's arrogance. That's not at all. That's not at all what God had in mind when He began the church. The truth is, that's not at all what God had in mind even when He called the apostles the leaders of the church. Now, yes, we need to be dedicated to the truth. And we need to make sure that we go back to Christ and His doctrine in everything. But what's interesting to me that if you went up to the Pharisees here and you asked them, is it your place to keep God's family pure? They would have said, absolutely, and that's why Jesus Christ is wrong. He's eating with sin wrong because He's not keeping God's people pure. Now, who was right and who was wrong? Were the Pharisees right and Christ wrong, or was Christ right and the Pharisees wrong? Why were the Pharisees wrong? The Pharisees were wrong because they had an arrogant attitude that hundreds of years before, God prophesied and said, I'm not going to use the arrogant and the haughty in my work. I'm going to use those that people think are poor and those that people think are needy. And so he did. He called Matthew to be one of his. And when Jesus spent time with him, the arrogant and the haughty couldn't believe their eyes. But something else happened. Let's read verse 12, and it's a strange irony. Verse 12, when Jesus heard that, He said to them, He's talking to the Pharisees now, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now, let's think about this. He's addressing them in a manner of teaching that hopefully they can learn something from this. And so He's explaining, listen, I have come to help the sick. Now, in their understanding, they're thinking to themselves, if they're thinking clearly at all, they're thinking to themselves, oh, he's saying that he's really come to help these people. But the strange irony of all of this is that the publicans and the sinners were not the sickest ones in this situation. We don't have to guess at that. We can read over in Matthew, the 21st chapter. Let's read verse 31 and 32 here, and we'll see an example. And by the way... Just before this reading that we're about to read, Jesus gave a real quick story. And he said, there was a man that went to his son, and he told his son, go and work in my vineyard today. And the son said, I will not, but later repented and went. The father went to a second son and said, go and work in my vineyard today. And that son said, I'll go, but did not go to work in the vineyard that day. Now that's the story that's prefaced. Now let's read here in 31 and 32. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, The first. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. So which one were the sickest? God's making it real clear here. He says, I tell you who are the sickest people. It's you Pharisees. You have a disease that's worse than tax collecting and harlotry. What in the world is their disease that's so bad? Verse 32, For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but tax collectors and harlots believed him, and when you saw it, you did not afterwards relent and believe in him. So back to that first story. There were individuals that were living a sinful life. They were cheating people in their society as publicans. They were in, involved in holotry. And John comes along, and Jesus comes along, and they teach the truth. And those individuals say, we need to turn away from this lifestyle. That's wrong. I want to become a follower of God. And they do. Scenario one. But then he says, look at scenario two. 
You Pharisees had this opportunity to hear the teachings of John and you rejected him. And now they're rejecting the teachings of Jesus Christ. But yet if you ask the Pharisee, do you serve God? The Pharisee is going to say, of course I serve God. In other words, it's the father that says to the son, go in my vineyard. The son says, yes, I'll go. But he never goes. The Pharisees, do you serve God? Yes, I serve God. Will you go in his vineyard? Yes, I'll go in his vineyard. Did they ever go? Not to this point. And for many of them, it wasn't in the Acts, the second chapter, after they crucified Jesus, that they finally repented and went to work in God's vineyard. Well, what's the point? The point is, it's ironic that Jesus said he came to save the sick, and he's having to explain this to the Pharisees as if the publicans were the ones that were sick. When Matthew would reveal to us later that they were the sickest of all. Now, we'll close here, but I want to just note so that you'll know for tonight's lesson that that has been uh, uh, put on the Sunday bulletin. Because of the end of this lesson, we'll put that lesson for Sunday night off to another time. And here's what we're going to study tonight. Let's read verse 13. Jesus is still talking here, and he says, But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You know, if God says, I want to give you a homework assignment, I want you to go and learn. And of course, they knew what he was referring to was Hosea the sicker. So what he's telling them to do is you've seen the situation. I've given you a little bit of instruction here. And if you want to gain the fullness of it, You go back and read in your own prophecies, Hosea 6. And you learn the lesson from Hosea 6. And you apply what you learned to what's happened today. And you'll benefit. Tonight, we'll come back and we'll study in Hosea 6. And we will see what Jesus said to see. We'll go and learn. But already in this lesson, as we extend this invitation now, it's obvious There's always a place for you in God's kingdom as long as you're humble. It doesn't matter to God what the past has been. What matters to God is are you willing to fully submit your will to Him and wholly obey Him and make your life all about Him today. And you say, well, I just feel a little weak. That's good. That's humility. God's always been able to use those that believe they're a little weak to do great things. Friends, please listen to this closing remark. If you feel like you have it all together, you're the sickest of all. This morning we extend the Lord's invitation. Everyone of us are in the same boat. We're sinners. The only way to be saved is the Savior. If you haven't been baptized into Him for the remission of sins, if you have, but yet you've left Him and you'd like to come back to Him, let's make sure that by His grace and by our submission that we leave here right with our God. If we can help you in any way, come as we stand, as we sing.